welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study on 3rd Nephi 12 through 17 with our guest instructor, Dr. David Holland. I'm Rebecca Deschwinitz and as a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm conducting today from my home in Provo, Utah. As a reminder, and for those of you who are joining us for the first time, our previous lessons are all available as podcasts at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 54 years of the journal. Video recordings of these lessons are available on our YouTube channel, which is linked on our website as well. Dr. Holland's lesson will be added to those by the end of the day. If you have enjoyed having free, easy access to more than five decades of fabulous dialogue, scholarship, art, fiction, personal voices, and more, and if you have loved, as I have, these gospel study lessons, we invite you to help support the mission and ongoing work of dialogue. Uh, send a text, we'll have the number up on chat and we'll get you set up, or you can go to the sub subscribe and donate link on dialoguejournal.com. We invite those of you who are with us live on Zoom to post comments and ask questions through the chat function. We may also try to monitor what's happening on Facebook Live where we know others are joining us. As always, be respectful and relevant as you participate. We look forward to integrating some of your online reflections and questions into today's lesson. Besides myself and the folks who are offering prayers today, Dialogue Board Chair Michael Austin and fellow board member Chris Kimball may also make appearances on your screen as they help out with technical issues and help to facilitate some discussion. We are thrilled to have Professor David Holland teaching us today. Dr. Holland is the John A. Bartlett Professor of New England Church History at Harvard Divinity School. He also serves on the faculties of religion and American studies at Harvard University. David's research focuses on the intersecting theological commitments and cultural changes that shaped American life from the early 17th to the late 19th centuries. His first book, Sacred Borders, Continuing Revelation and Canonical Restraint in Early America, was published by Oxford University Press in uh, 2011. His research has also appeared in the New England Quarterly, Law and History Review, and in a variety of other scholarly collections. He is currently at work on a new textbook of American intellectual history. We hold these truths, ideas, and ideals in the American past, which will uh, be published by Oxford, and a comparative biography, a particular universe, Ellen Gould White, Mary Baker Eddy, and the 19th century United States, forthcoming with Yale University Press. He is also an editor of the Oxford Handbook of Seventh-day Adventism. Brother Holland currently serves as president of the Nashu, uh, Nasha, uh, actually, it's Worcester now. They've made some changes. Um, so it's Worcester, Massachusetts stake of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a calling um, he has held since 2014. He has also served as a bishop, bishopric counselor, uh, including in my mother-in-law's home ward in Palo Alto, California, as a seminary instructor, uh, ward young men's president, gospel doctrine instructor, Cub Scout leader, and primary teacher. He served in the Czech Prague mission from 1992 to 1994. David is married to the former Jeannie Hansen, and they are the parents of two boys and two girls ages 21 to 11. We are grateful for Dr. Holland's preparation today and his willingness to share his insights. As is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed in this lesson will be those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. We begin today with music, Our Savior's Love, performed by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. After the music, our opening prayer will be offered by Dr. Catherine Gines Taylor. Dr. Taylor is the Hugh W. Nibley Postdoctoral Fellow at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University. She specializes in late antique Christian art history and iconography. Dr. Taylor holds graduate degrees from the University of Manchester and Brigham Young University. Her research centers on images of women in early Christian texts. Her monograph on the iconography of the Annunciation was published by Brill in uh, 2018. Dr. Taylor's current research investigates the typologies of Susanna and wisdom on sarcophagy and within funerary contexts. As it turns out, she and David were also friends in their youth, and um, I won't pass on the nickname she knew him by. Uh, Michael, we'll cue the music. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to be gathered together in communion and spirit with each other and with thee on this Sabbath day. We're grateful, Father, for the beauties of the Sabbath and for the opportunity that we have to lay aside the burdens of our week, of our world, and to find strength and support in thee and in our community. Father, we're grateful for thy son, Jesus Christ, for his example, for his teachings, for his sacrifice, for his glorious resurrection. We love thee, Father, and we pray this day that as we hear from Brother Holland that he will feel uh, of thy love, of thy spirit, and that we can all have open hearts and open minds, that we can receive those things that are for each of us. Father, please help us to move forward this week in light and in love as we move throughout our individual lives, that we can find ways to help lift in a world that is so weary. We Again, Father, we thank thee for all of our many blessings, and we pray these things in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Catherine, so much for that beautiful invocation. It's uh, always nice to be together with another escapee of Dixon Middle School. Um, and I'm especially proud to share an alma mater with uh, somebody like Catherine, who's doing such great work and furthering our scholarship. I'm grateful, too, for the invitation from Taylor and Rebecca, uh, two scholars of whom I have uh, great respect and in whom I hold the highest esteem. Chris Kimball as well. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. And I think we probably owe a shout out to Mike Austin, who's behind the scenes somewhere, making all of this technology work. So I'm thankful to all the people who um, 
have contributed to these gatherings and have made opportunities for us to connect uh, in the spirit of gospel devotion. So I'd like to begin uh, our conversation today by throwing some slides up. Um, hopefully, uh, I can get this to work here. Uh, Catherine, you're the only one on my screen with my slide. Can you give me a thumbs up if you can see those slides okay? No? Okay. Let's try this again. You'd think that I didn't do this for a living. Let's try that. We okay? Okay. Um, let's just start with an observation from Grant Hardy uh, that I think helps frame some of the things I want to say today. Uh, and Grant has placed a lot of emphasis on the similarities between what we call the Sermon on the Mount and what Jack Welch famously phrased as the Sermon at the Temple. And uh, Grant's emphasis on their similarity comes with um, some um, recognition of difference not only in content but also in context. Uh, this line from Grant, I think, is especially helpful. The first thing to notice is that even though the language of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple is very similar, the latter has been substantially recontextualized so that the same words take on different meanings. This observation of both its similarity and its difference from the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in the Christian Testament suggests to us uh, some divine purpose in the repetition of content and the recontextualization of content. That there is something in the substance of these words that bears repeating across time and space, but that there's also something about the particularities of time and space that remain meaningful even when engaging transcended and eternal thing. And this dynamic between the two sermons, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon of the Temple, raises for me what is perhaps the fundamental intellectual issue or challenge of modernity. That is the tension between the universal and the particular. We run into this challenge just about every intellectual endeavor that we undertake. And this might be phrased as a matter of determining what is it that binds us together as human beings? What is the shared human experience? And what is the function of difference, historical, geographical, cultural, social? And the reason why this is such a pressing issue, or one of the reasons why this is such a pressing issue, is that inclinations toward universalism and inclinations toward particularism have both had devastating consequences in the world as we know it. The universal has this capacity to bind us together. It's wonderful to be able to talk about human rights as a trans-historical, trans-cultural reality to which we all ought to be committed. But often what that's meant in practice is that one culture has defined the universal and then uses that as an instrument of kind of colonizing imposition 
on other cultures. That is, this becomes a stamp of homogeneity, stamp of uniformity that can do great violence to the diversity of different times and places and peoples. The alternative to universalism is particularism, which reminds us of the great diversity, the variegation of human existence, difference across time, difference across space. But one of the consequences of a preoccupation with particularism, which is an occupational hazard for a historian like me, is it often comes at the risk of atomization and even relativism. That is, if, if difference is the thing, what then do we have that might bind us together? What is the common human experience or common human language by which we might connect as the family of God? I wanna to point to a couple of ways uh, that uh, at least two scholars have dealt with this. And I'll just point at the outset that they're both African-Americans. One is Charles Long, famous scholar of religion, Long time professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara, uh, who just passed away this year, actually. We just lost Professor Long. It's part of the uh, history of religion school at the University of Chicago, which has been so influential within the field of religious studies. The other whom I'll get to in just a moment is Emily Towns, womanist theologian uh, and a figure of great renown within uh, religious studies and beyond, and, uh, and a fixture at the Vanderbilt Divinity School. I point out the fact that they're, they're both Black Americans, because I think that the experience of Black America has tasted the full brunt of both the consequences of white universalism, that is the proclamation of universals that are actually quite racialized in their origins and implications, and um, the potential for kind of segregated marginalization, minoritization that comes through radical particularism. It's another reminder of how important inclusive scholarship is, because I think both Long and Towns, by their own admission, have had as the experience of Black Americans, their scholarship shaped from the impact that they felt of both inappropriate applications of universalism and inappropriate applications of particularism. Anyway, that's a setup for two important interventions, scholarly interventions, one from each of them. Charles Long argued for a kind of variegated bottom-up pursuit of the sacred. He said, all right, let's accept at the outset that there might be something trans-historical, there might be something universal that we can call the sacred, some aspect of the human experience that we all have a sense of, but we can't take a westernized or Europeanized, a colonizing conception of what the sacred is. As we go out to understand a variegated and diverse world, we need to do more listening than speaking. We need to let the people we encounter build up their own analytical categories for understanding what it means to encounter the sacred, understand what the holy might be. And this requires us to use a kind of contemporary term of art, um, requires us to provincialize ourselves. That is, rather than assuming that we're coming with a universally applicable sense of what the holy might be or what the sacred might be, that we're actually going to recognize that our conception of that is just as other, just as provincial, just as local, just as particular 
as anyone else's. But in the process of listening to each other, we might in fact find a multiplicity of roads toward the holy. This is uh, Long and Long's uh, commentary that I found especially meaningful. This from his book, uh, Significations, probably his most important, or at least his most influential book from 1986. New discourse concerning the meaning of religion will occur when Americans experience the otherness of America. Only then will the scholars of religion be able to understand that human intercourse with the world of sacred realities is, hermeneutically speaking, one way and probably the most profound way of meeting and greeting our brothers and sisters who form and have formed our species for these several millennia. So for long, there is really crucial importance in the particularities of context in the otherness that we each bring to our pursuit of this shared human experience. We need to recognize that within ourselves, a kind of meekness of approach, but not to be so committed to that particularization, that othering process, that we lose sight of the fact that we share a species and that we have brothers and sisters. Appreciate his invocation of the sibling language there, who form and have formed the human family for these several millennia. That there is a way in which, according to Long's intervention, we can have both the blessings of careful particularization and the pursuit of something universal. This is uh, Emily Towns's version of this. This from her book, um, uh, Womanist, Theology, Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil. For her, it's really crucial as a womanist theologian to recognize that black women have distinctive stories, stories that cannot be pigeonholed into the categories created by other peoples. But also that no story, to use her line here, no story can be told in a vacuum. So each story is distinct, but they intertwine, they intersect, they interweave with each other in a way that enriches and illuminates any particular account. She says that any particular story can only be understood in relation to other stories, and this is the universal, or at least the first dawning of it, when we recognize the interconnectedness of these stories. So this brings me to uh, the question of the Book of Mormon, and this idea that there are two stories here. There is a Sermon on the Mount, and that sermon gets recontextualized and in fact the content is adjusted according to again the argument of Grant Hardy on the basis of that different context. Why two stories? Why, why two versions of the same gospel that take on different aspects in different settings with different people in different places? I actually think the Book of Mormon as a whole is in part designed to speak to this modern dilemma. When we talk about the Book of Mormon as being written for our day, I think its appearance for me, and I understand this might be a kind of idiosyncratic preoccupation of mine with this question of the universal in the particular, but I think this volume of sacred scripture actually speaks to this issue in a way that I find extraordinarily and indispensably helpful. We think about the message of 2 Nephi 29 and this image of multiple texts of scripture, different volumes of sacred writ coming from, according to uh, verse 
uh, 12, all nations. All nations have their sacred. All nations have their holy. All nations have been spoken to by God, according to 2 Nephi 29. And thus, the promise of the millennium is the confluence, it is the convergence of these multiple voices, these differently contextualized histories of the gospel that share much, just like the Sermon uh, on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple, much repetition, much consistency, but also key distinctions, and that those distinctions are just as important as the similarities. So we think about the purpose of the Book of Mormon as a whole as speaking to this issue of the relationship between uh, the universal in the particular. It helps us, I think, understand what's going on in 3rd Nephi with the reiteration of this sermon in a different time, slightly different time, definitely a different place, and among a different people. There's another version of this, I think, in the book of Moroni, where the principle of spiritual gifts is addressed and articulated. That is the idea of the universal God. The, 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 one of the points of those uh, verses in Moroni 10 is to reinforce that the principle of spiritual gifts is a way to articulate the consistency of God across time. That is that God is a God whose nature is to give. He's a God of gifting, regardless of dispensation, regardless of circumstance. But that those gifts vary. That those gifts are diverse. And again, I exhort you, my brethren, that you deny not the gifts of God, for they are many, and they come from the same God. And there are different ways that these gifts are administered. Again, this perpetual dynamism, this tension between the universal God who is the same and the gifts which are different. But it is the same God who worketh all in all, and they are given by the manifestations of the Spirit of God unto men to profit. There's something about the difference of this, the differentness of this, that is crucial to the impact of these gifts. The world is designed in such a way that we need each other. In fact, it's one of the, one of the great costs, one of the prices that we pay for this isolation of our current pandemic moment, is I don't walk down the corridor and rub shoulders with and interact with women and men whose gifts are different from mine and whose gifts have the chance to rub off on me, even as we collectively gather in worship of the universal God. So I think the Book of Mormon as an artifact, as an entity, as a, as a physical presence speaks to this issue, as well as the content, as well as the examples that are multiple throughout it, including the passage that we've gathered here today to talk about. I've, I've thought a little bit about a metaphor that might help us, or at least it helps me, think about this relationship. And I think about it in kind of musicological terms. There is a divine melody. There is a universal gospel that is the binding truth for all of God's children. But there is this great opportunity or a vast variety of human harmonies to enrich our experience of that shared melody. And the Book of Mormon is a reminder of this, and this passage in particular is specifically poignant in its reminding of this point. 
and that the ultimate millennial promise is that we will eventually have a whole symphonic grandeur of all of these voices, all of these versions of the universal gospel coming together. And this is the sign of millennial culmination. So we might look at uh, the similarities and, and part of the challenges of tackling these chapters for today is there's so much here. Two millennia of the best of Christian theologizing has gone into commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And there's so much we can say and, and we've got very limited time here. Do we talk about the similarities? Do we talk about the differences? I'm going to talk a little bit about both in a very rudimentary and superficial way as a result of the constraints that we face. But let me point out at least one difference that I think is quite important to me or quite illuminating at least. And that is in the Sermon at the Temple as opposed to the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the calling of apostolic disciples and the declaration of a higher law happens simultaneously in the Book of Mormon version. So if you think about, say, the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in the Gospel according to Matthew, the calling of the apostles happens in chapter 4, and then the Sermon on the Mount picks up in chapter 5, and the way those are juxtapositioned, they seem like two very separate experiences. The way it happens in 3rd Nephi 12 is they're right on top of each other. The apostles are called, and then the Savior launches in, to this call to a higher law. And that's significant to me because I think one of the challenges of Christian discipleship and one of the calls of the Book of Mormon as a testament of Jesus Christ is to recognize the intimate, intimate intertwining of form and substance, of the structures of our discipleship and the substance of our doctrinal commitments. And I think there's a real tendency, perhaps especially pronounced in, in the modern day, to separate these two. We might think about it, you know, a phrase like spiritual but not religious. I think what, what that often means is that people are interested in the content, the spiritual substance, without the structural burdens, without the complexity of actual church community. And so there is a kind of, I think, instinct to separate form and substance uh, and to celebrate substance and to be critical of form. The Book of Mormon repeatedly calls on us, I think, to recognize the, 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 the importance of each to the other. I think a lot about Paul's line, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the glory of God may be of us, may be, may be of God and not of us. This idea that the treasure needs a vessel for the conveyance of it to other generations, for the conveyance of it to other people who may not have encountered the treasure yet. You have to have a mechanism. There has to be a vehicle. There has to be a package in which the treasure might be contained. And the structures of our church life are the packaging, the hierarchical ordering of offices, uh, the buildings in which we meet the mechanisms of gathering that we're invoking, you know, in the absence of, uh, of in-person meetings. These are the structural realities of church life. And they can feel like something of a tangent to, or sometimes a distraction from, 
that core personal interior substantive experience for which we all yearn. Well, here we have the Savior saying the calling of apostolic disciples and the declaration of the higher law, the structure and the substance are in fact wedded to one another. And actually in the content of some of these verses that are distinctive from the Sermon on the Mount, we see that exemplified. So if you look at just verse 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, we get this interesting tendency that actually recurs in the Book of Mormon of the declaration of a kind of automatic structural reality between the authority of the church structure and the experience of substantive spiritual encounter. So uh, I realize that I'm violating every true principle of PowerPoint here to have this many words on a page, but for the sake of getting that, the scriptural text in front of us, uh, I hope you'll forgive me. So verse one talks about uh, the, the introduction of these um, apostolic disciples. Um, and he says, blessed are ye if you shall give heed unto the words of these 12 whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. And unto them I have given power that they may baptize you with water. And after that ye are baptized with water, behold, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized, after that ye have seen me and know that I am. Now, in the phrasing of this verse, there is a, a kind of interesting automization. There's, a, there's, there's no contingency. Right? If you're baptized by these servants, you will uh, then be baptized by the Holy Ghost. Then if you go on to verse 2, there's a kind of repetition of this same point, but with a kind of caveat, or at least with uh, a sort of qualification. It says, More blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because that you shall testify that you have seen me, and that you know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words, and come down into the depths of humility, and be baptized. For they shall be visited with fire and with the Holy Ghost and re shall receive a remission of their sins. So here is this sort of additional element of humility that is a crucial component for those who have heard the words of the disciples and are willing to submit to uh, baptism, even if they haven't seen the Savior. Now, this idea that the Savior speaks to different audiences at different times and conveys a sense that there might be something more than just the automatic structural realities of church ceremonialism or church ritualism in order to re receive the experience of a true baptism and the true uh, conferral of the gift of the Holy Ghost. One example of this for me, actually, if we, I'll bounce around here a little bit, uh, actually comes in Moroni's account of this same experience. So if you fast forward to, to Moroni chapter two, um, he's recounting this same moment. It's very brief. It's a short chapter. All of three verses is summarizing this moment when the sa Savior offered uh, the power to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's a slightly different version than what we read in 3 Nephi 11. Even though it's, it's shorter, there's actually additional information here that Moroni has. And you see him, you see the Savior talking to the, these apostolic disciples. I'm just distinguishing from the apostles, capital A, who are 
in Jerusalem. He called them by name, saying, You shall call on the Father in my name in mighty prayer, and after you have done this, you shall have power, that to him upon whom you shall lay your hands, you shall give the Holy Ghost, and in my name you shall give it, for thus do mine apostles. Now Christ spake these words unto them at the time of his first appearing, and the multitude heard it not, but the disciples heard it, and on as many as they laid their hands fell the Holy Ghost. So just as we saw back in 3 Nephi 12, this addition that humility is a key to the experience of baptism by fire. So we see here that mighty prayer unto the Father is crucial to have sufficient power to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. So it's not just you have received this authority, you can confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's a, another step here. There's a middle step. That is, you have to pray mightily for this power to exercise this authority. As if to say, your capacity to participate in these ordinances, either as officiator or as recipient, rests on something internal. It rests on something beyond the mere structural conferral of this ritual. Note here, too, that just as, he, just as we read in 3 Nephi 12, so here in Moroni 2, there's a distinction among audiences. Christ spake these things unto the disciples, but the multitude heard it not. Now, what I think is interesting here is we might kind of compare it to a modern-day practice. As Latter-day Saints, we're not, we're not actually invited to question the spirituality of those who are handling the structures of the kingdom. When I go to, uh, to the sacrament altar, I'm not encouraged to try to evaluate or speculate on the worthiness of the priest blessing those emblems. I am to accept in confidence that the mere fact of the blessing and the mere official authority of the person doing the blessing gives me the full rights and powers to the experience of the sacrament. Or uh, going to the temple. If a, if a saint goes to the temple and, and goes into the initiatory, she's not invited to question the, the spiritual, personal spirituality of the woman who is performing uh, the ordinances of the initiatory. We don't do that. We don't question each other's worthiness. We simply make sure that the proper authority is in place. There's a certain confidence. There's a certain cohesion. There's a community stability that comes with that, that, that would be lost if we were constantly scrutinizing each other's spiritual bona fides, spiritual uh, preparedness. And yet, these verses, whether in 3 Nephi 12 or here in this other accounting of it, Moroni 2, we're invited to sort of scrutinize our own experience. The, the, the officiators have to know that they have this connection with the divine. They've had mighty prayer with God before they've exercised this power. But the multitude doesn't have to worry about that. The multitude heard that not. That's not their concern. Or if we go back to 3 Nephi 12, those receiving the ordinance of baptism have to know something about the state of their own soul. They have to be honest and humble in their relationship to this, and their belief in the Savior, not having seen him, that allows this ordinance to have its full power. So here, once again, we see this interesting convergence of structure, the packaging, the official authority, the office, the conferral, and also this element, this leitmotif that weaves throughout, that there's something beyond that for the full experience of this, but that that's particular to us. It's not an invitation to condemn or hold each other to impossible standards. 
and thus undermine the structural cohesion of our community, but to self-evaluate and to reflect carefully on our own preparedness for these things. So again, this sort of collapsing of structure and substance in, in a way that I think is somewhat distinctive to the accounts that we get in the Book of Mormon. Now, let's, if we, if we can, let, let's move to another distinction of kind of similarity and difference between the Sermon of the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount. One of, one of, for me, the most moving parts of the Sermon on the Mount, that's sort of a stupid thing to say because it's all so deeply poignant. But the, the ending verses of Matthew 5 have been of particular meaning to me lately. It's where the Savior begins to talk about perfection. It's that final either haunting or motivating line, depending on your perspective, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Um, this raises this question about the meaning of perfection. And we could do a kind of philo philological study of that. What is the linguistic, you know, the Greek or the Aramaic or the Hebrew, whatever Christ is referring to in, in invocation of the term that we now translate as perfect. But for me, the context is, uh, is just as illuminated as any philological study. What he's talking about here is the capacity to love without restraint. The ability to love without consideration of human difference. That is the immediate antecedent to the call to perfection, the therefore, you know, the thing that precedes the therefore. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Be like your father who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Don't just love those that love you. Don't just love your group. Don't just love your posse. Don't the publicans do that? It's easy to love your friends. This is the message that precedes the call to perfection. As if to say the kind of perfection that the Savior is talking about here in his call to be perfect is the call to love without measure, to love without distinction. Again, I actually think that in the book of Moroni, there's a, there's a repetition of this message in Mormon's epistle on pedo-baptism, on, on, on infant baptism. He wants to demonstrate to his son, or he wants to at least profess to his son, that he's full of charity in, in declaring this doctrine. How does he prove that he's full of charity, fullness suggesting a kind of perfection? of this pure love, it's all, a children, all children are alike unto him. That's his evidence. Assertion, I'm filled with charity, right? Evidence of that, all children are alike unto me. So again, the universal, even in recognizing the particular, that some of those children will be baptized and some won't, but the love is universal. I love little children with a perfect love and they're all alike and partakers of salvation. Well, if we go back to the Sermon on the Temple, sermon, on, sermon at the Temple reiterates this point. It changes things slightly, famously verse 48, because it's now including himself in the, in the uh, category of the perfect uh, to which we should aspire. But verses 46 and 47 are additions. They don't appear in the Sermon on the Mount version. Therefore, those things which were of old time, which were under the law, in me are all fulfilled. Old things are done away. 
and all things have become new. Strikes me that this might be in reference to the nationalism of Israel and this conception of chosenness that even the Savior in his own time reinforced to some degree. Famous line uh, about children um, eating from the table and dogs eating from the scraps, right? This distinction between the covenanted people and the Gentiles, which, which can sometimes seem stark and troubling. Here, in this, as the resurrected Lord, he's saying whatever was in the past, whatever distinctions of identity that there were in the past, old things are done away and all things have become new. Therefore, you know, it's, the call is to aspire to this divine perfection, which is to eliminate the distinctions that would constrain our love. These identities of human difference that might limit our capacity to shower charity upon one another. So this, this idea of perfection is the Christ-like ability to love all and the ability to let go of past reasons for distinction that might in fact be carried with us into the present and on into the future. Comes an important element of the Sermon at the Temple that whatever our history, these are things to be set aside. I've often wondered if the troubling history of our own people in regard to racial difference is not a call to leadership in a campaign of racial reconciliation and justice and healing, that it's actually because of that history that we might in fact have a call to leadership into the future, recognizing that whatever was of old time is done away and the new call is to lead in the spirit of healing and justice. That our history, rather than being a constraint on our ability to lead, should be a call, a stimulus, a, a prod to our engagement, which is all, of course, contingent on our honest self-awareness, honest reflection on that path. Let me just say a couple more things. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of long-winded here, and I want to get to your questions. Uh, let me just make a couple of other points, and then we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll stop, and we'll we'll uh, have some Q&A. On this spirit of self-awareness, needing to be self-aware self in order to rise to the levels of chosenness uh, that are involved in a covenanted relationship with the Lord. The Savior talks about this, again, both in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Sermon of the Temple. And here the, the wording is verbatim. It's, uh, it's consistent. There is this line in verse 14, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the light of this people. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. A call to a particular purpose, a call to be noticed. Now that verse has had an interesting history in the United States and elsewhere. I'm a historian of the United States, so I'm going to point this out. But the question has often been, what does it mean to be the city on the hill? Uh, and that call to a particular role, a particular representative exemplary mission in the world, 
can have multiple connotations. I'll use, a, I'll use one reading here. This is from John Winthrop, the original governor of Massachusetts, the lay Puritan leader, uh, who famously gave a, well, we actually don't know if he gave it, but uh, is presumed to have given a speech called a model of Christian charity. Uh, again, we don't know exactly where he may have given it. Uh, the traditional account is that he gave it on board the Arbella, the boat that brought that in, um, initial group of Puritans to Massachusetts Bay in, in 1630. It's a long speech, but this is the passage that often gets quoted. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work, which we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw, withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whether we are going. That's pretty stark stuff. That's... that's uh, that's a darker version of the city on the hill than we're used to. That the city on the hill, to, to be called to be the city on the hill is a warning. It's a call to meek self-reflection, call to critical analysis, critical distance from our own selves, and a recognition of the risk we run in being on that hill, of actually doing damage, of actually doing harm through that calling. Now, um, there are uh, historical examples of politicians picking up on this phrase. I was gonna actually use some specific figures who have invoked it. I will say that it's been invoked on both sides of the partisan American political divide. So it's not the unique domain of either party. Um, and I have a colleague at, uh, at the Harvard Divinity School, Catherine Breckis, who's actually writing a book at this, on this, and there have been a few others um, that have come out recently. It's, it's on the kind of collective consciousness here. What does it mean to be a city on a hill for the United States at this particular moment? One thing that's striking to me, though, is there is a kind of partisan divide here in terms of how it gets involved. And I, I say this not as a partisan you know, analysis, but just as a historical reality. Those on the, on the left side of the American political spectrum tend to invoke the communitarian aspects of this. The, um, the, the call to critically connect, self-critically connect with others, to have hearts knit together. But in the process, what, what's happened in terms of political rhetoric in the United States is this call to a kind of communitarian meekness that I think Winthrop is getting at drops out the theistic language. There's not much reference to doing right by God. The, uh, the other side of the kind of political spectrum on this, invocations of the city on the hill rhetoric and this speech in particular, often includes the theism, the, the, the call to do right by God but drops out the humble self-criticism. It's often a kind of expression of national pride. 
that we've been called to do right by God. So you get this interesting division, neither of them maintaining the kind of the full substance of Winthrop's invocation of this Sermon on the Mount phrase. So you either get kind of hum humility in obligation to the divine or humility in obligation to our fellow beings. And yet these two things have kind of been disaggregated in much of the contemporary political rhetoric. I think it's interesting for me as a student of the Puritans, the ability to combine those two and humility is the cohering cement there. Uh, that it is the humble willingness to recognize our need of each other and our need of God that allows us to avoid that bifurcation, the binary between the two great commandments. That humility is the common thread. And throughout the Savior's discourse here, we get a call to meekness, a call to humility. It's one of the distinctions between the Sermon at the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount is early on, we get this line from the Savior. I don't have the verse here, but I think it's 10 or 11. And behold, I have given you the law and the commandments of my Father, that you shall believe in me and that you shall repent of your sins and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That phrase, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, is obviously one that's quite familiar to us. It recurs throughout the standard words. But it's actually a, a kind of Davidic combination. The, the first time, at least in the, in the English translation of the King James Version, the first time the combination of a contrite spirit and a broken heart appears comes in the Psalms, comes from a very penitent, deeply actually devastated king who's thrown everything away for the sake of adultery and murder, who's coming back to his Lord with whom he had this sweet and special relationship and comforting himself with the assurance that the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Here we have the Lord again. It's interesting to me that, that in that Davidic line, there is this relationship between divine presence and a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And here the Savior in uh, the Sermon at the Temple is making that same connection. Come unto me, that is, enter the divine presence, just as David is saying, I want to be near unto the Lord. Coming unto me, the, the price of admission, the ticket to the divine presence, is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The, the Davidic uh, word that gets uh, picked up by the Savior in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are the meek, uh, for they shall inherit the earth, actually is a direct appropriation of David's line, but the meek shall inherit the earth. Christ knew what he was doing, this reference to the Davidic Psalms. And the word there is not the Greek praus, which people often think is the, is the meek there because it's New Testament. It's actually a, an actual reference to the Hebraic, uh, the, 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 the Hebrew Bible. And the word is anav, which means deep, profound humility, self-reflective humility, a sense of inadequacy, a sense of lack. That is the, the thing that bonds 
the two testaments together. That is the thing that uh, I think combines the two meanings of the city on the hill. By the way, I think the city of the hill should be read with its antecedent, which is a warning to the soul of the earth that it has the potential to be worth nothing and cast out. It's always that call to be aware, to be humble, to be meek. Let me just conclude with one kind of personal example. One of the reasons why this point in the Book of Mormon is so personally meaningful to me and the Savior's exemplifying of the meekness to which he's calling us in these passages. Uh, and that is an experience I had as a 16-year-old young man living in England. I, I, uh, I, I, I spent my junior and senior years of high school in England. My, my parents were serving in the church. I went to an English school. It wasn't always an easy transition. It was very formative. It's very, still has left a deep imprint on me, that sort of adolescent tran transition to a different country and a different culture and the ways in which that helped me think and reflect on who I'd been and who I was becoming. Shortly after moving to England as a young man, I was watching the news and, um, and they were reporting on a, a tour that Queen Elizabeth was taking of the Commonwealth countries, countries that had been part of the empire and now had this you know, different uh, imperial relationship uh, to England, but all recognizing the Queen of England as their shared monarch. Anyway, as part of this Commonwealth tour, she was in Australia. And in Australia at the time, there was an independence movement afoot. In fact, the, the prime minister at the time was a, a, a member of the party that was advocating greater independence from, from the Commonwealth. And here comes the Queen of England. And it was sort of, all eyes were on this moment. You said independent-minded prime minister and the monarch of the empire meeting together on Australian soil. And the question was, how was he gonna handle this? What was he gonna say? Was he going to uphold the protocols of, uh, of a monarchical visit? And he introduced her to the Australian parliament. And in doing so, he put his hand on her back the way that you, know, you might um, do just in common interaction. You know? hand on the back of the queen, pointing out the various members of parliament. And as an American watching this, it meant nothing to me. It didn't register with me at all. The next thing I know, the British press is going ballistic. Right? The British press is kind of famous for going ballistic anyway. Uh, but, you know, headlines splashed across every daily, you know, insult, affront to the queen, Everyone knows you don't touch the monarch until she touches you, right? He knew what he was doing. This is a small gesture with huge geopolitical consequences. And I just remember watching this with fascination as somebody that had no frame of reference for what was going on, teenage kid. And it's one of those moments that sort of sticks in your mind for whatever reason. And it was in my mind years later in reading this account of the Savior's appearance at the temple in Bountiful. And that among his first acts is to invite everyone to come touch him. Not only to touch him, but to touch him in a really intimate way, to put their hands in his wounds, to feel the wound in his side. And I don't know what the multitude at the temple looked like, but I'm imagining this was a, a sort of unwashed mass of humanity. They'd just been through a deeply traumatic experience. 
These were not people who were prepared for a royal appointment or audience. And his first act is to say, come touch me. And as I read that, I reflected on that experience of a worldly monarch, not commenting on political systems here, but just the world in which we live, in which to be touched by a prime minister is an insult. And what it means to serve a heavenly king who wants the diseased and the dispossessed and the marginalized and the dirty to come touch him, to connect with him. So not only in this moment is the Savior calling us to meekness in a whole variety of ways, all of which I've tried to probably incoherently point out here in the, our hour together, but he arrives at the Temple Mount as the ultimate example of that, the great contrast to worldly pride. The perfection to which he called us is the ability to love without measure, to love without restraint. And his call to be touched by us is perhaps the ultimate meaning of that message. And I leave that thought with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I think we have a minute or two here at least. I know there have been questions firing. I don't really know how to do the interactive piece without segmenting them a little bit. So I apologize. But I'd love to hear some of the questions and, and see what we can do with them. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, David. Uh, there have been a number of folks who are contemplating this tension between form and substance and thinking about um, kind of the relative, you know, what, what matters, the ordinance, um, you know, if it's meant to facilitate the divine, then how do we understand kind of the importance? I'm also thinking about um, we're living in a moment where the pandemic has separated these out a little bit in our, in our personal and collective lives so that we're separated uh, in many ways from our usual experience with form and we're left more with uh, substance. Um, and so, and, try, and trying to navigate that. Um, maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think you've, you've touched on one of the implications of it for me, which is sometimes the form is the source of connection. The substance can be a very individual, very private kind of experience. It's that union of the soul with the divine. But if, if it weren't, there are people in my life for whom I have endless affection that I never would have known without the home teaching program. There are people in my life I would never break a piece of bread if I didn't belong to a war that is defined by geography, that is structurally constrained. If it's a merely, merely a gathering of affinity, there are tons of people that, I, that are now intimate uh, associates in my life that I wouldn't even have exchanged words with. And so your point, Rebecca, that... Um, that, that the, the pandemic and the isolation has encouraged us to think more about substance than structure. I think that's true, which is beautiful in a lot of ways, but it also speaks to what we lose without the structure. You know, I think Latter-day Saints and Catholics are still, well, I shouldn't say this too confidently when I haven't thought through it too carefully, but um, I think most, at least in the United States, most congregations are congregations of affinity. That is, you, you find the pastor you want, you find the community you feel good with, and you, you, you gather 
you know, where you want to gather. A Catholic parish and a, and a Latter-day Saint ward are, are I, again, there might be others, but as far as I know, these are at least two of the most striking examples of this idea that the structure is what the structure is, and you're going to gather with whomever you're going to gather with. And this is not a congregation of affinity. This is a congregation of proximity. Uh, and the structure is designed to gather us together in ways that we otherwise wouldn't. And so sometimes the structure is the connective tissue. And to lose that is, is to lose something really significant. Again, if the structure becomes a, a, a substitute for a replacement of the substance, then we've, we've paid a terrible price on that end of the equation. Um, I think about the, the sacrament in this regard. It is both um, structure, it is, it is it's a repetitive, it's got emblems, it's got materiality, it requires authority. It's got, we do it as a congregation. Um, it has lots of structural elements to it. Uh, and the, and the you know, famous scholar of religion, Saba Mahmoud, in her book, The Politics of Piety, talks about ritual as an opportunity to develop certain qualities and that there is in the mechanics of it, there is in the structure of ritual, a kind of disciplining process. There's a sort of self-formation that, that, that at least the practitioners that she's observing don't believe they can have any, any other way. And I happen to include myself in that camp. But the sacrament is also a moment of silence. It's also a moment of reflection. It's also a moment of substance. It's both the materiality of the ritual and it is the, uh, the immateriality of the connection with the divine. And so the, you know, to be spiritual but not religious or to be religious without spiritual, I think something's lost in either of those equations. Uh, and form and substance should inform each other. At least the substance should inform the form. But the form, I believe, is for us fallen mortal beings an indispensable part of the experience of the substance. And that's the substance, I, I admit, can be frustrating, right? It does throw us into congregations with people that we might not choose to be in congregations with. It does require us to go through material motions that we might find burdensome or repetitious or laborious. But I think that's part of the point. And uh, the goal is to bring those two into such close proximity to one another that they accurately mirror and reflect each other. Yeah, I'm thinking, Let me, I'm thinking oh. this beautiful image that you left us with, with the mass of humanity um, being invited to come and touch the Savior. Um, and it seems that you know, that is also a story for us about what the form can do, that it can bring us together to experience the divine in this really profound way. Again, with folks who we may or may not um, otherwise engage with. The gathering at the temple, right? Which is, you know, in fulfillment of Isaiah's promise, you know, all nations shall flow unto it. There's a structure, there's a form, there's a building, but there's also this beautiful, messy, you know, expanse of humanity, and they're both living sort of in relation to one another. Yep. One, of, uh, one of the questions that comes up, and I'm clearly abstracting, from a number of comments and, and your wonderful presentation, which I'm now going to be thinking about for the next, I don't indefinite time. The, uh, the polarity of, of the universal and the particular and the call to love as Christ does uh, raises a question about uh, uh, sec, uh, churches, I guess. 
let's say churches, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a particular that's obviously relevant in this conversation, but uh, the, the question would be uh, churches, as we observe, tend to um, be tribal, tend to say we are right, um, to uh, end up with some kind of exclusive nature, um, join us, I mean, this is proselytism, uh, which seems to be in conflict with a universal approach or a universal love. Um, let me let me put leave it there. Okay, yeah. comment on. Sure, it's a great great point. It is the, the the tension that we live with. I think is especially pronounced among Latter Day Saints for reasons I'll mention. It gets back, and those actually are, are related questions, right? The structure is particular, the substance is universal uh, in some ways. Uh, and so to what extent do you need that specific structure uh, is the question of the moment. I do, if I could just, I have this terrible tendency to think in metaphors, so I'll offer another one um, at the risk of mixing them. But, you know, if we think about our understanding of... Um, of the restoration and its relationship to conception of a historical apostasy. Um, there are a couple ways to think about that. One is to, to suggest that, you know, the, the purpose of the restoration was to hand down all essential truths to compensate for the heresy and the falsehoods of an apostate world. And, and to think about this metaphorically, I, I always think about this sort of divine mirror, right, that's supposed to reflect the Savior, right, and that was the church. It was a reflection of the Savior, and through a variety of historical circumstances, it breaks, it shatters, and people are grabbing pieces of that. You have, say, believer's baptism among the Baptists, or you have a commitment to, you know, meaningful conversion among Calvinists or whatever, right? We could, we could go on and on and on about little pieces that get picked up and emphasized. Um, and the, the point of the restoration is to provide a way in which the mirror might come back together. One of the ways you can think about that is, you know, whatever is handed down through the structure of the church is, is the fullness, is, the, is the, the mirror restored. Or that what gets restored in the restoration is the frame, the authoritative frame that the structure in which every truth can now find its place, its peace. This, is, for me, is kind of the Charles Long piece, that there is, a, there is a transcendent holy, but that every experience, every story has a place to contribute to that. And, uh, and so I do you know, raise my arm to the square and believe in the importance of the restoration of authority and the restoration of structure, but I'm also very much committed to Joseph this declaration that the part of the restoration is to gather up truth wherever we find it, uh, to think capaciously and broadly, and um, to listen. There's a reason why we have two ears and one mouth, right? We should be listening twice as much as we speak. Uh, and that the, the point of the restoration is not to exhaust those points of light, those reflective pieces of the mirror that reflect the Savior, but that there is I think when we do this right, there is a framework in which all truth can be circumscribed into one complete whole. And that that, that 
dimension of the particular and the universal has a millennial fulfillment. And we're still, you know, stumbling and, and haltingly finding our way through that process, as you imagine we might. But that that's ultimately the meaning of the restoration for me. So I loved you bringing in um, Charles Long and Emily Towns uh, and getting us to think about um, kind of breaking down distinctions, including more voices, doing more listening. I love this idea of the restoration as a frame that then we can bring in all these different pieces of the mirror. Uh, a number of folks listening in are, are thinking about um, this idea that you brought up of, of uh, kind of a call to leadership in the future for a prodding to engagement to overcome some of uh, our own faith's past challenges and not listening uh, to the particulars and bringing them and making them part of the universal. I had a chance this past week to talk with one of my classes. They read an article about Jane Manning James and, and got to know a little bit about her story. Uh, and so I'm really thinking about how, you know, she's writing these petitions to church leaders, um, asserting her qualifications, as you talked about in the Book of Mormon, her own connection to divinity as something that should qualify for her for participation. Um, and so I've got her story in my mind and thinking uh, again about uh, a couple of years ago, the B1 event, which is a really a big call to the universal. Um, but I know some folks felt a little bit like, well, what is, where does that leave the particular? Um, anyway, so uh, I think we're all trying to grapple with what this means for our faith uh, and church uh, uh, on, on these issues. If you want to say something. Yeah, I, I do think that the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is a, among many other things, kind of defined by its role as the meeting place of competing or complementary truths. I actually think that for me, that there, there's actually um, symbolic meaning in, in the crucifixion. Christ is suspended between two hands. And he's pulled in opposite directions, and he is the mediating force between them. He is the great mediator, whether that's grace and justice, you know, whether that's um, structure and substance, whether that's, you know, um, the universal and the particular. Uh, it is that there, there's a... Um, Taylor will remind me of his name, but... Um, Hans Boltazar. There's more, there's more German names in between his first last name there, which is why I pause. I can't remember what's in between Hans and, and Boltazar, but. Uh, somewhere, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, he, he makes this beautiful argument that the Savior is designed to solve this problem because he is a particular human being in a particular time, in a particular place, upholding the law of a particular people. And he's also the universal God, right? He, he is the embodiment of the universal in the particular. He's the only person who can claim to embody both of these. Uh, and the kind of scholarship that either wants to make him one or the other, right? He's either, you know, so transcendent that his Jewishness, his primitiveness, his, you know, his time and place are irrelevant, or he's so his time and place that he can't possibly be the universal God. But that he is, in fact, the, he is the mediator of, of these things that 
that when he calls us to live at the convergence of these competing truths, to, to be both just and merciful, uh, to, to believe both in, in grace and works, uh, to, to pay attention to the universal and the particular. It's a challenging place to put a mortal being because we're not him. We're not, we're not the great mediator, but we're aspiring to follow him. And it can hurt sometimes, right? The crucifixion being the example of that. This can pull us in multiple directions. It can be painful to try and figure this out. But the part of the point of discipleship is the ongoing effort to try. And that in the effort, we are transformed. And so, you know, when I say, we can look at our history of, you know, white supremacy and say, well, that's kind of an embarrassment. It would kind of be hypocritical for us to now claim that, you know, we're on the cutting edge of racial justice. Or we can say, because of that history, we ought to be this, right? We can take our experiences and allow them to propel us rather than constrain us. And that, I think, is the point of the atonement, right? The point of the atonement is you can learn from history without being confined by it. I mean, personally, that, that's what it does for us. Uh, and I think that applies for us as a people. Uh, that the Savior's mission is to allow us to learn from our past uh, and rather than being constrained by it, to be motivated and propelled by it. Just one, one thought on that topic. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you for a beautiful lesson uh, for enriching <laughs> our minds and our hearts. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we look forward to joining many of you in mind and spirit as we listen to General Conference next weekend and hope you will join us again in two weeks, October 11th, when we explore 3rd Nephi 17 through 19. We'll be sharing our fall lineup of Dialogue Gospel Study Teachers after conference. Be sure to sign up if you haven't already for our newsletter. Folks have been asking what Dialogue's plans are post-COVID-19, a time we all anxiously await. I am thrilled to announce that we'll be launching in late October another initiative that will continue into that much-anticipated future, a monthly Dialogue Fireside series. More information will be forthcoming, but just to get you as excited as I am, our first teacher will be newly retired DC Circuit Judge Tom Griffith, and in November, we'll hear from Dr. Claudia Bushman. We will close today with a hymn, Abide With Me, and a prayer, which will be offered by Dialogue Editor Extraordinaire, Taylor Petrie. Dr. Petrie, a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, is chair of the religion department at Kalamazoo College in Michigan. His most recent publication, besides our amazing summer issue of Dialogue, um, is Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Sexual Difference in Modern Mormonism that came out earlier this year with University of North Carolina Press. Dear Lord, we are grateful for the blessings that we enjoy. And we ask you to bless Brother Holland for his inspiring lesson, his faithful service, and his generosity with his talents today. We know that you give good things to those who ask, so we pray for those who suffer from disease and loss, from injustice and from catastrophe. From this, help us lead to let our lights shine, to knit our fates with one another. We pray then for the humility requisite of this obligation. 
We, bless, we ask that we are blessed to learn the lessons of discipleship, that we, may be, that we may seek to be on the side of the blessed. Help us to love our enemies, to bless those that persecute us, to go the extra mile in our charity. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And may we attend to the beams in our own eyes that we may see clearly. We thank you for the blessings that we enjoy and plead that we may assist you in spreading those blessings. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.